So it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Baratunde Thurston. Baratunde Thurston, yeah. Baratunde Thurston is a futurist comedian, writer, and cultural critic. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, How to Be Black, and a co-founder of the About Race podcast. He also previously served as the supervising producer for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and currently hosts The Spit podcast with iHeartMedia and 23andMe. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Baratunde Thurston. Thank you. And uh, please continue that warm welcome to chief alcohol promoter and bootlegger, Greg Rodriguez. <laughs> that was an amazing sponsored post for alcohol in general. I like that. Any, any kind of alcohol, we got you. And I want to thank you all for braving Armageddon, uh, also known as rain, in Southern California. As an East Coaster, this is a normal night, but I realize many of you bought pontoons and inflatable vests. Uh, you've got rafts waiting just in case, so... No, it would have snow if it was a normal night. That's right, that's right, because it is late November at this point. So I'm going to introduce David, and then we are going to jump right into this. Uh, David Blight is an award-winning historian and director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University. I like the hums. We have interesting placement on hums tonight. Arizona State and abolition. <laughs> yeah! Interesting pairing. This is good. David has authored and edited a dozen books. Hmm. <laughs> it's our refrain for the night. We'll do this call and response thing. Including uh, the titles Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory, and his latest, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. And today, that book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, made the New York Times top 10 books of 2018. Yes. The New York Times said some nice things about you and your work, David. They said, this is a monumental work about a monumental figure. They called it a cinematic biography and the definitive account. Well done. I don't like that word definitive. <laughs> definitive. And, and so I, I want to start with an understanding of where you first met Frederick Douglass. Mm. Well, it was in 1882. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, I wish. Um, I don't think I learned anything about him in high school. I'm not even sure that I did in college, which shows how old I am. It was while I was a high school teacher uh, in the 1970s. Uh, we were all creating courses called Black History, at least we were where I taught in Flint, Michigan. And uh, Douglas was part of that course. Uh, he was part of the book we taught. And of course, he was, and I actually taught John Hope Franklin's great textbook, From Slavery to Freedom. And of course, Douglas is in there. So I don't think, I have no memory of learning anything about Douglas until I was actually teaching. But then my interest in Douglas as a scholar really begins in graduate school, because I went to graduate school in part to study abolitionism, the Civil War. And I particularly wanted to work on black abolitionists, and hence I ended up gravitating to Douglas in part, well, for two reasons. One, he's so important, and two, 
he left the most material to work with. Right. <laughs> he wrote millions of words, most of which we have. Uh, and my first book was my dissertation in graduate school about Douglas. And I've never quite been able to get him out of my life. I've tried. But what does I've that mean? Well, it means that I wrote my first book on Douglas, which was a narrow study of Douglas and the meaning of the Civil War. Then I edited editions of his first mm. two autobiographies, and I wrote some essays on Douglas. So you kept trying to leave, and he I kept, kept sucking he you He kept back coming in. back yeah. and coming back. Douglas is and awesome. I had him gone. He, he, was, he was a big part of other books I wrote, like the book Race and Reunion. Uh, but he was gone until I went to Savannah, Georgia in 2006, to give a lecture to school teachers about Douglas. And there I met a private collector who took me to lunch and then to his house. His name is Walter Evans, and he is the reason, frankly, that I wrote this book. Uh, this book is dedicated to Walter and Linda Evans and to my dear, dear friend Jeff Ferguson, whom we lost this year. But Walter has a collection he's been collecting since the 1970s. It's a huge collection of Douglas family manuscripts, scrapbooks, photographs, and other material that is in his house in Savannah. I say this every time I talk about the book, because without Walter, I wouldn't have done this. Uh, Walter is a retired African-American surgeon who grew up in segregated Savannah but went north for higher education, went to the University of Michigan Med School, practiced as a surgeon in Detroit for about 35 years, but his real passion in life was collecting African-American rare books, manuscripts, and art. He's like Oprah for surgery. Uh, <laughs> he'd love that comparison, as a matter of fact. And Walter, if you see this, you see? I'm, getting, the record, you, I'm getting you a good press, Walter. <laughs> um, but that day, he took me over to his house, and on his very estimable dining room table, he got out this collection. And I didn't commit immediately, because to be perfectly frank, a full life of Douglas is a daunting task. I wasn't sure I wanted to or I was up to it. But within, within the year, I realized, if I don't do this, somebody else will. <laughs> so I committed to write A New Life of Douglas. And what that collection especially illuminates is the last third of Douglas's life. Many of you know Douglas, born in 1818, lives all the way to 1895. So he lives 30 years after the Civil War. That older Douglas is the, is the Douglas we haven't known as well. This collection is almost entirely about the life of the older man. It consists of thousands of newspaper clippings that his sons collected and lots of other documents about his extended family. And it opened up uh, the aging Douglas, the older man, in ways uh, we'd never seen before. Okay. So that's how Douglas came, came back into my life, yeah. and now I can't get him out again. I um, thought you were going to tell us mm. that you were inspired by a president. Oh who was inspired that yeah. people were starting to notice Frederick yeah. Douglass more and more a few short years ago yeah. because he was doing such amazing things. The trouble was I was already working on yeah, this for so eight like years before he said that. So we'll find but he did, he did a favor. You know, ignorance sometimes leads to desire to know something. See, that's how you know this is a high school teacher at heart. That's right. right? 
He's going to yeah, take that, that idiot student that in the corner like quote and help some, us all learn. That sounded like a quote on some calendar you put up in your classroom. <laughs> Ignorance will lead you to exactly. learn. <laughs> if life gives you lemons, make lemonade mm -hmm. and all that nonsense. But uh, yeah, Trump did us a big favor. On the day that happened, believe it or not, gospel truth, I was teaching Douglas's narrative that week in my lecture class on the Civil War and Reconstruction. And uh, I don't think it hit the news until, I don't know, 11 o'clock or something. And suddenly I was getting these, uh, you know, messages from my teaching assistants telling me this is happening. And one of them sends me a text or email at about 2 in the afternoon. He says, David, I just showed on the screen the news of Trump's comment. And he said, the class gasped as one. And they said, he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> and I just, I think I wrote him back and said, teaching moment. <laughs> Go for it. And the next day in lecture, I took in the photograph. This may seem morbid, but I took in the photograph and projected it of Douglas in his coffin. There is a photograph of Douglas in the coffin. And I simply started the class by saying, I'm sorry, he's not alive. But because some people didn't know. Some people, some people didn't, didn't know, know. But it was a good teaching moment. The teaching you know, moment. You got the class smiling moment. or something. Professor so Blank. Whatever it takes to make them laugh. I, I first really met Frederick Douglass later in my life as mm -hmm. well. I, I mm -hmm. had, he was on the wall during Black History Month during uh -huh. elementary school, and there was like this cursory overview. He had a dope afro. You know what I'm <laughs> Like he was really clean. Um, <laughs> He but looked we, great in the He suit. looked amazing. <laughs> like, he would just be in yeah. blavity and fashion. His Instagram would be ridiculous. That's right. That's right. That's like, right. he would win on the looks alone. And be like, oh, we're fighting slavery? Yeah, that too. But them shoes, where did they, they come from? So There's a reason he's the most photographed American of the 19th century. <laughs> he's the best looking. Well, that's one of them. <laughs> What's the other? Because he traveled so much. Yeah. And everybody wanted him to sit for photographs. See, that's like door-to-door -door Instagram is what I'm well, there, there you go, okay. So I... Um, so you get that, I don't. I, I, but <laughs> so we have a, a very diverse crowd, and I, I love seeing that, truly, truly. So it was uh, the summer of 2011, uh -huh. and I was actually writing my book, How to Be Black, yeah. and I took a diversion onto Twitter, uh -huh. and I saw these two uh, black women professors uh -huh. talking about Frederick Douglass. Huh and mentioning this speech that he gave, what to the slave is the 4th of July, right. that I had never heard of. Whoa. Right? And I was like, but I'm black as hell. How did this happen? <laughs> Y'all failed me. <laughs> you know who I'm looking at? And so I read the speech to right. myself, and then I, I decided to perform it. Mm -hmm. And so I did a very mm -hmm. impromptu, you know, 4th of July was the next week. Oh. I invited people to the writer's room. I worked at The Onion at the time. Oh, yeah. So I commandeered the writer's room. I set up a webcam to stream it. We had 10 or 15 people in the room, and I did the Declaration of Independence mm. first as the opener, 15-minute right. opener, right. and then the 45-minute to an hour, depending right. on your pacing, of Frederick Douglass's right. heavy-handed, mm. wildly mm. prophetic, vindictive, hilarious, right. spiritual, yep. uh, and many other words. And I've since done it again at the Brooklyn Public Library Whoa. with more production and a mm. director. And so... I, mm. I had to embody a piece of his mm. millions of words. Right. And so what jumped out to me most, especially given my partial mm -hmm. profession, mm -hmm. was the jokes. Mm -hmm. mm. I, 
I did not have an image of Frederick Douglass mm -hmm. as someone who deployed humor. Right. He right. looks so serious oh, yeah. in the sepia tone photos, Ernest. and yeah. he's fighting for literal freedom right. for millions of people. Right. And so the story that I've overheard about him did not mm -hmm. live in these moments of mm -hmm. withering sarcasm and biting right. satire. Right. What can you share with the rest of us mm -hmm. about how deep that tool was used for him, maybe uh -huh. where it came from, huh. how, how widely we might find it. Well, Douglas is always and everywhere an ironist. He would, and then sometimes a satirist, but Douglas early on began to see the doubleness of things. And if you read his narrative, you read his autobiographies, you'll find he writes, although this comes in part from the sermonic tradition too that, that he heard as a slave, teenager, he's always using these opposites, these opposites, these opposites. So, and, and Douglas's life was just fraught with irony. Right. You know, when he says in his narrative, remembering his childhood, when he's eight and nine years old and remembering why he would ask, why am I a slave? He says, why am I a slave? When my white playmates here in the streets of Baltimore, these eight and ten-year-old Irish and German kids, are not. And he plays that out over and over. And, and what that comment, as well as many, many others, become are universals. I mean, when Douglas asks, why am I a slave? It's not any different than a Syrian child asking today, why am I a refugee? It's no different than somebody asking, why are you richer and, me, and I'm poorer? Why do the people in that valley have this and we don't? Uh, why am I hated for my religion? Why am I hated for my sexuality? All these opposites, in fact, he called his childhood a childhood of extremes. He, he learned early on that he's going to have to cope with this. He's going to have to find a way to live with this. It doesn't mean he processed everything with humor, but he surely processed it with irony. Through his life, he was Jim Crowed more times than he could count. Early on, he would react largely with rage. With time, he reacted with humor. What are you going to do yeah. with the absurdity of racism at some point, but to convert it into humor? And he sometimes would, you know, if he got, if he got rejected eating in some hotel restaurant, or they told him to go eat in the kitchen, he would ask them where the dogs were eating. <laughs> you know, uh, probably smiled as he did it. Can, 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 I, can you tell me, take me to the dogs? You know. Um, so he had to learn the coping, which yeah. has always been part of how people have had to deal with racism. But I think it begins with this sense of realizing how brutally double the world can be and having to see it through often a kind of bitter irony yeah. uh, that he could convert, if he needed to, into humor to survive it. The theme that speech, by the way, yeah. is the masterpiece. Uh, by round of applause... How many of you are familiar with the speech? Yeah. Okay. So that's uh, about half. So some of you have work to do. <laughs> we all got work to do. Yeah, we all got work We to all do. just different work. That's true. Uh, there's enough work to go around. Find it. I have a video of it, but you don't have to watch that one. You can just read it yourself. Um, it is it's tremendous, mm. and it's weighty, and you might cry. Oh, yeah reading it, much less hearing it. And others have done versions of it. It's, uh, 
It's a calling to account of the country. It's a rhetorical in a, in a masterpiece. It's a Jeremiah. It's Douglas calling Americans to the altar. Uh, it's, uh, I actually describe it as a symphony in three movements. Yeah. It is musical. Uh, but it's, 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 and, and he worked harder on that speech than possibly any speech he ever wrote. There's, there's a letter where he says that, that he'd worked for three weeks on that speech. Um, anyway, it's uh, Douglas taking the 4th of July, ripping it inside out, making an audience hurt as a, like a thunderstorm is raining upon them, and ask them, why have you invited me here? 4th yeah. of July is yours, not mine. Mm -hmm. You may rejoice, I must mourn. But then in the end, he spends the last three, four pages sort of letting them back up, wiping the rainstorm off them. Mm -hmm. It's like he handed out towels. And then he says, but it's not quite too late. Your country is young. Yeah. It's malleable, he says. You can still change it if, if basically, if you repent and see the truth of what slavery is doing to you. And then he ends with that incredible poem by William Lloyd Garrison, Go Sound the Jubilee. So they've been, they've been beaten up through yeah. the whole middle of the speech, that audience. But he lets them back up at the end and says, it's not quite over, but and it's up to you. Well, and, and when you read it now, yeah. not from 1852, right, <laughs> but right. from 2018, right. the youth of the nation rings more hollow. Yeah, we're not. We're, we're, we're not, not as young. young. No. By some standards, Chinese standards, we're still yeah, quite yeah, young. Yeah, right, right. But by yeah. others, we've outlasted yeah. some nations. Uh, and yeah. and so that that tail end optimism, that faith in malleability, yeah, it takes true. a little more work. That's true. Um, and we're not in the depths that he was in, but uh, we have a yeah. lot of depths still yeah. to to escape. The context of that speech is hugely important. I mean, you know, the risk of having a historian here is they're always going to stop and talk about context. Context! Yeah, <laughs> warning. <laughs> uh, but it's 1852. The Fugitive Slave Act has just been passed two years earlier. There are fugitive slave rescues going on all over the country. Violence is in the air, and abolitionists are beginning to use it. Uncle Tom's Cabin has just been published and is taking the world by storm. It's just been published like two months, three months before he gives that speech. Mm -hmm. And it's a presidential election year. And the political parties are tearing themselves apart over the issue of slavery. And Douglas gets this invitation to speak on the 4th of July. And you can just almost see him sitting there saying, whoa. <laughs> this is, a, like, like you said, I had to, I had to accept this yeah. event. Yeah. I, I got to do this one. This is a moment I'm going to go for. Uh, and by the way, Douglas was, <clears throat> you didn't ask, but Douglas was, <laughs> you know, one of the things I'm completely convinced about is he didn't always know what he thought until he wrote it down. Mm -hmm. He was a writer. And he would, in a crisis, in a pivotal moment, in a, you know, a catastrophe, a triumph, whatever it was, he'd go to his desk yeah. and he'd write it. And then he would know what he thinks. Now, a lot of us, if you're a writer, we, know, we understand that. I don't know what I think until I write it down sometimes. And then I don't always know. But, and we should understand that most of his great, all of his great speeches were written as text. They didn't just come out spontaneously yeah. from the top of the head. This was a careful writer, and that speech especially, and it's, it's a rhetorical masterpiece. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Aristotle's 
you know, poetics applied to oratory, he didn't have to read Aristotle, and he didn't. But it, it's just a classic use of rhetoric that people now study just as a piece of rhetoric. Um, the, his use of words, yeah. you know, as a weapon, yeah. and uh, was, was a tremendous part, maybe the defining part of him, as you said in your yeah. opening, we know so much about him because he left so much evidence yeah. in the form of words. Yeah. Where did his attention to mm. and reliance on words mm. come from? Well, it comes from his boyhood as a slave and then his teenage years as well. He seized onto language in a way that's a bit mysterious. It's not always easy to understand. Why does a child become so good at this and not that? Um, his mistress, Sophia Auld in Baltimore, when he's only seven. And by eight. mistress, you mean teacher? Uh, or, no, or no. Master's the, wife. The, the master's wife, yeah, sorry. That options. mistress. Sure, good. <laughs> well, well, there's only one option there. That was for uh, you, YouTube. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, he learns his alphabet for a year or two, then the master tries to de uh, deny it to him, but it was too late. Then he, he begins to learn from his little white playmates in the streets of Baltimore, because they had this little school book called The Columbian Orator, which he then buys his own copy of with a little money he'd managed to save from the jobs he's doing. And that book was magic to him, because in part what it was, it was a school reader, uh, second in sales only to the McGuffey reader in the 19th century, but it was a manual about oratory. That's where he first learns... Mm -hmm. You know, how do you modulate your voice when you're speaking? What do you do with your shoulders and your arms when you're an orator? And, and as a kid, he realized, it's clear, he realized what he was good at yeah. was words and language. And every child wants to find something, especially when you're a slave and you don't have anything else to hope for. So b before he ever escapes from slavery, he's already, he's not mastered oratory yet. He's not a good writer yet. He still has to learn all of that but he's already seized upon words as something that gave him some power. And then when he does escape, he's in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He's 20, 21, and 22 years old. He gets involved in the local AME Black Church, AME Zion Church. And very quickly, they realize this kid can preach. And when he's 21, he's up at the, he's up at the pulpit preaching. Yeah. And then they even ordained him to be a preacher, which meant the congregation got together and said, preach. <laughs> um, and he gets discovered there by Massachusetts abolitionists uh, in 1840-41 and invited out onto the lecture circuit. So words and language were both a gift that he came out of slavery with, but also something he cultivated and worked on and worked on and worked on. Um, and it is the golden age of oratory. If you could do this, this was the biggest game in town. Right. And he had his cause. And his cause at first, of course, was just his own story, just telling his own story, mm -hmm. which is what he did for the first three years out on the circuit. There's uh, this theme of opposites, and that yeah. tension comes up in many places in your book. Mm. And, and one of the most... Um, dramatic, and it feels like a theme repeated through leadership across generations, mm -hmm. is patriotism or not patriotism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love America or damn America. Right. And Douglas, both. And, and, and both. And how do you understand 
his holding of that space yeah. for mm. both. He's channeling the country. He's challenging the country right. to be its best self. Right. He also leaves the country like right. a lot of good Americans do. Right. And from the outside says, shame on you. Right. How dare you? Right. A pox on your house. Right. And hates yeah. the country yeah. deeply. Yeah. How does he hold that together? He loved and hated America. Yeah. It depends on when you ask. Because it's a familiar feeling. It's a very familiar thing uh, throughout our history. Um, he loved the creeds. He loved the Declaration of Independence, yeah. the principles. He loved the words. He loved the words, and he loved the four first principles of the Declaration mm -hmm. of Independence, and he knew what they were. He never been to a school where he had to recite it, but he read it. He loved the natural rights tradition. In fact, now there are all sorts of political philosophers who, who write about Douglas as a great proponent of of the natural rights tradition borrowed from the Enlightenment that he applies to the 19th century, meaning, meaning rights that we are born with like precious ore from the earth. Inalienable. But, inalienable. Yeah. But hypocrisy became his subject. It's the great subject of the Fourth of July mm -hmm. speech. It's the great subject of his famous slaveholder sermon speech. Uh, it was his favorite subject the way America has built itself on creeds and violates them. Just give you a couple examples. When he writes the narrative in 1845, exposes his life now, he goes to England, and he spends 18, almost 19 months in Ireland, Scotland, and, and Britain. And though he encountered a little bit of racism here and there, nothing like he had experienced in America. And the Irish reformers loved him. The Scot, the Scots, went crazy over Douglas. They wrote poems about him and songs about him. He was this amazing, exotic, black orator who had been a slave. He was like this real, authentic object. Yeah. And he knew how to perform that. And in Britain, he meets all of the major abolitionists and reformers. He was lionized. And, and this, you can hear oh. echoes of this for yeah. centuries after that, Absolutely. for decades at least after that. And he's only in his 20s. He's, he's, and 60s he's a and young yeah. guy. Yeah. But when he came back from England, he was a very angry young black man. And he, he came back from England with a speech where he used a refrain, I have no country, I have no patriotism. My country disowns and denies me, I disown and deny it. I have no country, I have no patriotism. Even a Wendell Phillips, a great, one of the great Massachusetts abolitionists, at one point took him aside in 1847 and said, Fred, Tone it down. <laughs> you know, you know you're, you're kind of driving the audience away. And one newspaper... <laughs> the real buzzkill, Fred. Yeah, the buzzkill. People like to hear, we're number Wendell one. Wendell Phillips we're didn't speak one. about buzzkills, but that's exactly what it was. And one, one newspaper in Pennsylvania called him the black demagogue. No, no, called him demagogue in black. Mm -hmm. And I remember the moment I read that, I thought, that's a chapter title, <laughs> bingo. Which it is. Which because, it is. because that's what he seemed like. He was very angry, and he was just constantly bashing, blistering, attacking this hypocrisy of the United States. This is the late 1840s. This is during the Mexican War. Then it's in the early 1850s after the Fugitive Slave Act. There was almost no reason you could even... There seemed to be almost no reason to sustain hope in this country through the course of the 1850s when you realize what was going, compromise after compromise after compromise on the slavery question. However, 
Douglas never stopped believing in the principles. Mm. And what happens to him, I think this is very important to understand, is that he moves from that mode of abolitionism we've always called moral suasion, which meant the strategy was to change human hearts and minds, not just the law. He becomes a much more open political abolitionist by the 1850s. He begins to realize the law might be usable. The Constitution itself and the Bill of Rights might be usable. And he begins to realize that though it's hard to own up to some of these political parties, which are so you know, milk toast on race questions and the slavery question. Nevertheless, there's this new thing called the Republican Party by 1854, which opposes the future of slavery. And he, ha he is learning then a kind of political pragmatism which gives him some hope that it's still possible that this country might be forced into a sufficient conflict that it would tear itself apart and remake itself what he really, really wanted to happen. And I'm not saying he predicted the future. He's not that kind of prophet. A, a real prophet doesn't predict. A real prophet finds the language to explain things the rest of us can't, which is what he did. But he had hoped for, wished for, a collision, uh, a clash between the interest of slavery and freedom that would force the country into some kind of conflict out of which it might remake itself. Now, he, he had his own moments, though, yeah. of, 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 of being tested so much that he considered leaving. He never really did, but he did think about it on the evening of I mean, of the half Civil this War. room has thought about it. Yeah, I know, that's right. Uh, probably have, yeah. You know, New Zealand after the election. <laughs> My brother lives in Canada now. It's not the reason why, but he does live in Canada. <laughs> He claims it after the fact. Uh, right, right, He's right. like, I'm prophetic. Well, now he says, you know, you can always come up here. <laughs> sure. Um. What, how did, you know, we are surrounded by this question, this mm. phrasing of what it means to be American, mm. the idea of a massive conflict within the country that would shake its conscience and force it to remake itself. Yeah. Douglas often referred to as a founding father of the second American republic. Mm -hmm. Are we entering a third mm. American Republic? Mm. Do these questions of clash internally that mm. force answers to mm. questions of who are we, we, are we there enough? Are we in a similar, I mean, obviously mm. a different mm. premise, mm. but a similar structure? Mm. How do you see now with, this with, moment, with how much then you've experienced? Yeah, well... Historians are constantly being asked, you know, to try to explain this moment. And Just we, tell us what we to try. do. I know. Tell us what to do. <laughs> well, I don't want to yeah. cry, but like, no, come I on, know. man. Like, yeah. it's hard out here. What do we do now? <laughs> I can't even turn on Twitter I know, anymore. It's I know. I know. We're kidnapping and gassing babies. It's well, real. look, look. No, I, it's real. I, I don't mean this to be a buzzkill. Yeah. Oh boy. But no, no, no. You no. never want to hear that. No. But but I know. It's. <laughs> but you know what? You got to take a long view. Yeah. We have been here before. Not quite, you know, Trump is sui generis. There are aspects of Trump's presidency that are, are truly new. We don't need to go into all of that. We're in a new place in a host of ways. Our institutions are, are in deep trouble. Many, many of our political institutions are dysfunctional. We have a structural, constitutional, institutional problem that predates Trump. But we have been here before. We've had numerous racial reckonings in this country. But each time we do, 
we end up looking back at the template of the first one, which is, of course, the <coughs> slavery, the Civil War, and Reconstruction, which is another way of saying we should actually know a little more history. Uh, and, and not Self-interest. I know it is. Story. I'm just saying. But you know, it was the same <laughs> with 9-11 in a way. When 9-11 happened, we were all part of this. Let's face it. In the immediate wake of 9-11, the question was, oh my God, this has never happened before. Well, there was Pearl Harbor, there was this, there was that. We compared it to Antietam, the sheer death rate of so on and so on and so forth. And I was once on a, like one of these um, panel interviews for the New York Times about the new 9-11 museum. And we were all being asked, so where do we date the story of 9-11? Where did it begin? Mm -hmm. you know, and we were all arguing about this and so on. And we decided sort of that it ought to be the Russian war in Afghanistan, because that's how Al-Qaeda got to Afghanistan. And I got a little tired of this. It just seemed too recent to me. So I just blurted out in this thing. It was really dumb. I blurted out, I think we should start with the Trojan War. <laughs> now that's how you do history. Because the question was, <laughs> no, the question was about the slaughter of civilians. Yeah. Well, the, the humans have been slaughtering civilians forever. Now, take it to the question of race in America. We've been about this problem over and over and over, and we do want it solved. We do want it over. Yeah. That's uh, the way we thought we could feel about the election of, of, of an Obama. But what, what we keep learning is that every revolution has a counter-revolution. They always do. Uh, the great counter-revolution after Reconstruction is the template. There's your model. Uh, the emancipation of four million slaves and the rewriting of the U.S. Constitution was a revolution, but the side that lost wasn't ready to take it. Well... The side that lost to Obama, it turns out, I mean, that's putting it too simply, but wasn't ready to take it either. And they've had a counter-revolution. So, I don't know. And back to Douglas, I mean, he lived that revolution. Yeah. He lived the whole trajectory of it. Because he, he was around through the war. And, and he lives longer. This is, I mean, what makes his life so interesting to a biographer, among many other elements, is that, my God, he's born in 1818 before steamboats, the telegraph, the rotary press, and a lot of uh, the railroad, for God's sake. But he lives all the way to 1895. He lives till the phonograph, electric light bulbs, and a telephone. But in the course of his life, he's one of those rarest of reformers who actually sees his cause win. I mean, truly win. Yeah. And he's only in his 40s. And yet he's going to live long enough to see it all but erased and all but betrayed. And he's got to live to interpret all of that. And he did. He's got something to say about all of it. Um, Can you give us a little sample? Well. And just warn us if we're going to cry? Cry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll give you the good part first. No, I should give you the good part that, Yeah, second. let's strategize good, around this. Good part second. <laughs> well, you know, he... Douglas, it. Hit yeah, him hard, yeah, and then... Yeah, but he lives back. long enough, of course, to, to, to live to the Jim Crow era. Jim Crow laws begin... The in, Klan. In for, the Klan, yeah. lynching. Jim Crow laws begin enforced by 1890. He dies in 1895. The last great speech of Douglas's life uh, usually went by the title Lessons of the Hour. Sometimes it was called Why the Negro is Lynched. Yeah was a very analytical speech about the question, why are black people being lynched? And he went through a series of what he called excuses. 
The first excuse was slavery because black people weren't capable of this and capable of that and capable of this and capable of that. Um, then the second excuse became, well, they're not really capable of these rights, uh, these liberties, so we've got to separate people, separate, separate, separate. And then he said, the third excuse came when they needed an, they needed an explanation and excuse for the alleged sexual violence of black men against white women so lynching had become the sort of third excuse for this kind of suppression and oppression of people. It's a very analytical speech, mm -hmm. but he's trying to explain why this is happening. And even at the end of that speech, and it's customary with Douglas, he found a way to bring you back to a little bit of hope, mm -hmm. a little bit of hope, and the hope was still in the American creeds. Yeah. Now, but you want to look for real hope, the most hopeful speech of, one of the most hopeful speeches of Douglass's life is called Composite Nation. It's worth reading today. It's so modern. It anticipates so much of where we're at. He writes it in 1867. It's the, it's the height of Reconstruction. It's right when the Republicans have taken back control of Reconstruction. They've, they've crafted the 14th Amendment. They've crafted the first Civil Rights Act. They've crafted the Reconstruction Act. Everything seems possible. Reconstruction... It's not clear where it's going, yeah. but it seems possible. And, and do we have the federal military in the South still, enforcing these? Still federal military in the South to a substantial extent, but yeah. that's decreasing. But he fashions in this speech this vision of an America that might actually one day become this thoroughly multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-racial nation, a composite of the world, living under a common constitution. Doesn't this sound ridiculous now? I mean, living under a common constitution, section one of the 14th Amendment, which he celebrates in the speech. He gave that speech from about 1867 to 6970. This is the sort of brief, shining moment of Reconstruction. He never gave it again. Hmm. Rang false. Because Reconstruction started to fall apart in the 1870s. Yeah. Um, but if you want that vision of what we, in the 90s, we call multiculturalism. Now we call, call it diversity. We, we've always had a new term for each decade, it seems, for what we're trying to do, which is to build this huge composite nation. If you read that speech and you're a teacher, go look at your curriculum. It's kind of anticipating everything we're trying to do these days, at least in most schools. So if you're looking for hope, <laughs> 1867, Composite Nation. <laughs> if you're looking for hope. And they're all online now. You can get them online. Just wake up in the morning and read some hope. <laughs> you know. I, I want you to be the voice of my alarm. <laughs> I just want you to say Frederick Douglassisms oh my God. on my phone. No, Good really? morning. It's hey, time I, for hope. I could make a living doing that, maybe. You I could. Look into this. You'd be the great orator for no, modern times. Right. Uh, one thing that strikes me as different than to now uh -huh. is the power of hypocrisy, mm. the, the power in calling out hypocrisy uh -huh. seems to have weakened mm. because mm. shame mm -hmm. has weakened mm. as a something to fear. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the flagrant befouling mm -hmm. of the mm. standard of the, the words of the principles, uh -huh. we, it feels to me like we've moved so far beyond that institutional uh -huh. respect. 
that uh, it's harder to call someone out on yeah. not doing what they say because that's what we do now. Gosh, that's fascinating. And you may be right that to, to shame someone now is like, eh, what's new? Yeah. You know? uh, that sounds so cynical, but you might be right. Or is it also, I mean, I think you're right about this. Talk about a downer. Come on, you're doing that now. I'll bring it back. I all got right, you all. all right, I got all right. you all. all right. But, you know, is it also not possible that in our, in our time now, uh, with the speed of news cycles and the constancy of, you know, cable news and online news, we're, you're all going to check your phone in a moment to get some information. So am I. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that, that the kind of power of oratory, power of language that Douglas was so good at, people just wouldn't listen that long. I mean, or might they? I don't know. Obama showed us again that oratory can matter. But, you know, Obama rarely gave a speech more than 20 minutes. I mean, for good reason. I mean, his people know, you know, don't let him go any longer. Uh, Bill Clinton sometimes went too long, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, although I remember Mario Cuomo as an orator. Man, was he good. Uh, but that's a lost art. Um, now, great writing is not a lost art. And people are reading. That, I, this, this, I have to say, is hopeful. And I've been on a book tour for two months, and this is my 33rd event or something. And I, it's been so hard, and maybe I'm overreacting, but it's been so heartening to realize how many people in this country actually want to read history and want to read books and care about ideas. Look at all you here tonight. What are you doing here? <laughs> I mean, it, Stay and, and, and uh, so... And they're buying huge books. I mean, my God. Um, so that's heartening. Yeah. People do read and want to read. Thank God. Yeah. But, but the way Douglas could cast in a speech a problem of a moment, a dilemma of the moment, whether it's a Fugitive Slave Act or it's emancipation in the middle of the war or it's the Reconstruction Acts or it's you know, the legacy of Lincoln or whether it's the exodus to Kansas, whatever his topic was, he'd do a two-hour or oration. And, and people were right there with him because it, the, it, was, it was the golden age of oratory. That's gone. We live in a new age, a new kind of media, a new kind of information, a, n a new way of even communicating with each other. But words still matter yeah. all the time. Words still matter. I mean, I mean, every day we hear, you know, somebody, the pundits are always talking about who controls the narrative. It's a story. And, and on that, I will bring us back from the pit that I helped dig okay. and say, first of all, Frederick Douglass will have a dope podcast right now. <laughs> that's, that's where you go for the two-hour oratory nowadays. Right. You know? People right. will listen to yeah. a long tale and a long they story do. in their ears as they're waiting in traffic or doing Pod laundry. Save America are long. Absolutely. Uh, These are not 20-minute types. Sometimes those guys just wander. <laughs> That's a great endorsement of Pod Save America. I, know. I like Sometimes it those guys just want I like I actually like it. <laughs> I do like it. Award-winning history professor David Blight no, no, of Pod no, Save no, America, no, bro. No, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, but I will say that that I worry about the lack of shame and the power of calling mm -hmm. out hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. But I still maintain faith in um, some essentialness, some core mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. in a time of change that mm -hmm. moves so quickly. Yeah. 
you have to hold on to values and something a little more oh. deep and structural oh. because you can't hold on to this. Right. This is going to change in tens more seconds, right? It's right. gone. Right. And, and the other piece, you said it was story. Yeah. And so what Douglas, with all his words, reminds me of and what you've reminded me of is this is all a story. Yeah. America is just a story, yeah. right? What it means to be American is to live inside of a story. Yeah. There's no natural law that right. makes America. There's no physics, really, that make America. And so you can change that story. Right. And when you look at all the types of stories that are coming out now, yeah. you look at shows that are being made now, producers, yeah. the yeah. folks on camera, behind camera, the multimedia, yeah. it's not great oratory in that no. 19th century tradition, but yeah. we're making a new tradition. Of storytelling. of storytelling, which is the oldest and thing we, can we have as humans. Yeah. Right? And we're probably hardwired for it. Yeah. The neuroscientists say we're hardwired for it. A, a quick, a quick reaction. Yeah. A week or two ago, I was in Vermont for the Vermont Humanities Council. I don't know if any of you are involved in humble that. brag. California Humanities Council, but these are good organizations. Anyway, they had their big annual conference on the theme of hope and optimism. Mm -hmm. But they put it with a question mark. Can America find this again? So we were, the, people, the speakers were all challenged to talk about it. So they asked me to talk about where Douglas got hope from. Yeah. And I said, oh my god. <laughs> but I worked hard on it. But you know, one of the things I ended up arguing, I had eight part ways he got hope. You know, I yeah. did the academic a thing. A symphony in eight parts. Yeah, eight parts, <laughs> that symphony. But I actually went to some examples to show that what sustained him is that he had a moral core. He had a moral story to tell. He had a moral center that it comes all the way from his beginnings and his youth. Now, we can all have that. You don't have to have been a slave to have a moral core. I hope not. God, no. Uh, but that is, that is a constant. He goes through many changes in his life, many ideological changes, strategic changes in his ideas and in his life but he never lost that moral core that he could fall back on. In the worst of times, yeah. in the most terrible moments, he could uh, fall back on a basic set of moral values. Well, we are going to fall back on your wisdom and yeah. questions. We have microphone runners, and let's just jump right into the Q&A portion. We can save applause for when this is all wrapped up. It's going to be tremendous applause. I can feel it. <laughs> David, I'm Sewell Chan. First, may I suggest that everyone in this room Google David Blight Memorial Day because you will be moved to tears. And that's a whole other part of your scholarship that I just want to commend to this crowd. Thank you. My question, can you talk a little bit about the historicization of Frederick Doug Douglass? By that, I mean mm -hmm. how did his memory and interpretation of his life change I, this is a very big question, but especially during the Jim Crow era and after, mm -hmm. might there be anything valid, mm -hmm. perhaps, in Trump's observation that Douglas is, quote, being recognized more and more? <laughs> never heard it put that way. That's actually And funny. you never should again. No, that's... <laughs> I know this man. A footnote to Donald Trump. That's good. Uh, well, to your, I'll try to be very quick with your first question, which is huge. Douglass's narrative went out of print for almost a century. It was put back in print in 1960 by Harvard University Press and by Benjamin Quarles, the great black historian who taught all of his life at Morgan State University. 
That book was nowhere for sale and almost nowhere taught except in black schools uh, for nearly a century. Uh, then it came back into print in the 1960s for lots of reasons. Uh, there was no modern biography of Douglas until Benjamin Quarles in 1948 and then Philip Foner right after that. Uh, so it's only been since the 1950s that, our, that an awareness of Douglas was even possible. Actually, Phil Foner put Douglas's collected writings, or at least a lot of them, in print in the 1950s. I still have my old paperback copies held together by a rubber band. Um, but uh, Douglas was not exactly in favor in the 1960s either. His second marriage was to a white woman. He didn't make a good black nationalist in the 60s. He didn't seem to. He was too much of an integrationist, too much of a radical patriot rather than whatever else we wanted or people wanted him to be. Um, but I will say this now. Um, his narrative is taught all over the world. Uh, I just did a seminar this week at the, at the New York Historical Society with 20 New York City high school teachers, all of whom teach the narrative. We did four hours together on how they teach it and so on. It was great. I learned from them. Um, so to your comment about maybe there's some truth to what Trump said, yes, in the sense that we're far more aware of Douglas now. But that's about as far as I'd go with that one. Thank you. Thank you, Sewell. Thank you, Sewell. We don't have to use that name anymore either. Hi, my name is Corey Gaither. Um, I have a brief question. Could you speak on Frederick, Frederick Douglass's strategy of working with imperfect allies such as Lincoln, sure. um, wanting to send slaves back to Africa, and sure. maybe some of his colleagues having issues with his second marriage? Thank yes, you. great question. Douglass learned a certain degree of pragmatism, political pragmatism, in the 1850s as he began to shoulder up to political parties, first the Free Soil Party, then the Republican Party, although he was never very comfortable with the Republican Party, right on down to 1860, Lincoln's election, uh, in which you, since you referred to Lincoln, he was a ferocious critic of Lincoln in the first year to a year and a half of the Civil War because the Lincoln administration was not making war on slavery. They were trying to even return fugitive slaves back to their owners although that never worked. He changed his tune with Lincoln, slowly but surely, um, after the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in 1862, and particularly after the final proclamation in January 1863. He, uh, he made relationships with other politicians, and mostly with Republicans. He became relatively close to Charles Sumner, Salmon Chase, and a few others. Um, Douglas loved politics. He loved the arts of politics. He loved the bending of wills that went on in politics. He will never run for an elective office. He will end up being appointed to three federal offices after the Civil War. And that's where your question becomes even more messy and complicated and fascinating. Because Douglas went from a radical outsider. I make this a huge theme in the book. He went from a radical outsider, an abolitionist always beating on the doors from outside, to a political insider after the war, to a, to a federal bureaucrat as marshal of the District of Columbia and recorder of deeds in the District of Columbia. And he liked to see himself as a kind of advisor inside the orbit and circles of Republican Party politics. He was never quite the advisor that he wanted to be. 
Um, but he had to learn this kind of pragmatism to deal with people who may not ever take an issue as far as you wanted them to, but, but, but because they have power, you have to try to bend their wills. I think it's one of the most fascinating things about him, the way he, he learns this hard-earned pragmatism about real politics. Hi, my name is Dan Lynch, and I have a question about uh, Douglas's relationship with women's rights activists and his feelings about uh, women's equality. Um, he was at the Seneca Falls Conference in 1848, yeah. Yeah. but he clashed with a lot of leading uh, feminists after the Civil War. So I was wondering yes. if you could talk about that, the contradiction in his relationship with mm -hmm. women's rights advocates. Douglas absolutely believed from early on in women's equality, even women's economic equality. He even favored the, they had this attempt at a law in New York State for, for ec women's economic rights and right to divorce. He utter, totally believed in women's equality, publicly. Oh boy. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he's at Seneca Falls. He's the only black person at the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848. He's the only male speaker. He's the only male who signed the Declaration of Sentiments. And he goes back to Rochester after he just started the North Stars newspaper. And he changes the masthead to writers of no race or sex. No color or sex, excuse me. But to take him to where you went, after the Civil War, in the effort to bring about the 15th Amendment, the Voting Rights Amendment, Douglas had this terrible breakup with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and some others among the women suffragists, with whom he had been very close. And he, by the way, he had been very close with many other women abolitionists in the movement. But the clash, of course, over, was over whether this, this amendment was going to be for black male voting rights or for anyone else. And everyone with one eye open knew that if you put women's suffrage into the 15th Amendment, it never passes. It didn't have a chance. And Douglas says, this is the black man's hour. He wasn't the only one to say it. Lots of others said it. And Stanton and Anthony uh, had run out of patience. They weren't going to postpone their liberty any longer. They had postponed it during the war to support you know, the war effort for emancipation. And that breakup became ugly, as you must know, uh, with Stanton and Anthony in particular firing racist comments back at Douglas, at black men, comments like, and they use the N-word, comments like, if an uneducated former slave black man can go vote, why can't an educated white woman like me vote? Reasonable question, but politically impossible. Douglas handled most of that attack with grace, but not entirely. He also trotted out some terrible stereotypes, like saying publicly, but women have their husbands to vote for their interests for them. When you read that one, you think, oh, Frederick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Come Frederick. On, you, know. you aren't so modern after all. Uh, so never call him Fred. He didn't want to be called Fred. So it, it's, it's a fascinating story. He has this horrible breakup with Stanton and Anthony and a few other women. They sort of make up over time, but never really um, over, over the 15th Amendment. Uh, but he was a women's rights man in, that, in the sense of supporting women's rights in all other instances. And even on the last day of his life, 
he attended a women's rights convention in Washington, D.C. and sat on the platform right next to Susan Anthony. They didn't even ask him to speak because toward the end of his life, they often just wanted him to be there, just appear, you know, just be Douglas for the day. And he just sat there through the whole convention and then went home that night and died. My name is Tony Bell, and I had a question about the, essentially what's called the Compromise of 1877, which you know, ended Reconstruction. Great. What was um, Douglas's, did he do any writing about that? Because oh, yeah. it seems like it's virtually unknown. Like People don't realize that it was, the ending Reconstruction was very strategic. Uh, he hated it, <laughs> the, the compromise part of it. Uh, he was very glad Hayes, Ruther B. Hayes ended up as president, and he even had a private personal meeting out in Ohio with Hayes uh, during uh, the interregnum uh, and got a promise from Hayes of a federal appointment. There's, there's that in the background. And that's how he became marshal of the district. But he hated the compromise because it clearly meant a kind of coup de grace for Reconstruction. Although Douglas had seen the ends of the Reconstruction coming well before that. Um, uh, but that disputed election he followed very closely. He wrote a good deal about it. Um, but he hated the essence of the compromise because it was setting up what he saw coming for some time, which was the North and the Republican Party retreating from enforcement of Reconstruction, or black rights for that matter, uh, anywhere in the <laughs> South. He had anticipated this with a great speech in 1875, the year before the election, on the 4th of July, in fact, in D.C. It's in that speech that he has this incredible line where he says, if, if war among the whites brought freedom and peace to blacks, what will peace among the whites bring? which is his anticipation of this kind of white national reconciliation that meant possibly the death of black rights. He saw it coming. He wasn't alone in seeing it coming, but he hated the compromise. Hi, I'm Dave Gutman, and uh, my question follows the last part of your talk, which was on the moral code. It seems like when mm -hmm. we're tear gassing babies at the border mm -hmm. and doing all these other things, that America has gotten away from its moral code. Mm -hmm. Now, as a historian, has there been other cultures that have had that dilemma, and how did they get back out? <laughs> well, of course there have been other cultures that have had that dilemma. Uh, ask the Germans, <laughs> ask the Russians, ask almost anyone in the world. Um, ask the British about their empire. I mean, <laughs> Uh, how did they get back up? Some never did get back up. Some were crushed. We need to remember that. Some cultures and nations that have lost, if we want to call it, their moral core were destroyed completely. Uh, the Third Reich, the Japanese regime in the Second World War. Um, you, you could cite many, many, many others. I don't, I don't have the moral philosophical um, agenda by which Americans, and none of us do, get our moral core back. <laughs> he does, he does. at the reception, homie. He I does. <laughs> I walk around with a moral code, I'm except, ready. Except what we do know from history. Like it or not, it has to come through politics. If a democracy survives, 
and every, and everyone's worried about it. you know the Atlantic had a big special issue on is democracy dying around the world and it did it in an international sense why is democracy in so much trouble uh, if we if we if we cease to have a democracy where people believe in politics then we're in huge trouble I always tell people if I get asked these kinds of moral moral philosophical questions watch the political parties and watch certain institutions if our political parties as much as you may not like them, disintegrate and splinter into more parties. We may like one of those new parties, but watch political parties and watch our political institutions. If they disintegrate, we disintegrate. That's uh, why elections really do matter. Before we close, I would like to thank the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, as well as Arizona State University, our partners in the What It Means to Be American series for making this possible. So a big round of applause for them, please. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Louis? Also, a big thank you to all of you for coming out tonight. Please stick around for the reception. We'll be just outside in the lobby where you registered. Also, our favorite local bookseller, Skylight Books, is here tonight. They're selling copies of David Blight's new book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Um, please stop by their desk if you have, if you have a minute. Uh, Baratunde? Yeah, so I did want, if we can kill the music, that'd be dope, uh, to thank you in front of everybody. Thank you. Uh, because this was wonderful. This was fun. And I, I like that you and Frederick have come so close and that you could share as much as you did with us. I would also add as a moral re-grounding two examples. You got the Reverend William Barber oh. in the southeast of this country calling for a moral revolution of values in this country with moral Mondays, et cetera. Mm. And it's, it's transpartisan, right? This is not a democratic movement or Republican movement. Mm -hmm. It's a human and an American movement. And then uh, it's trite to say young people will lead the way. Some of them will. Some of them are Nazis, and you shouldn't listen to them, right? It's not a universal truth, right? There are terrible young people, but there are some really good ones, too. And They're here tonight. And they are here, clearly, because we don't let Nazis. Actually, they should probably be here if you're a Nazi. You should learn um, why you shouldn't be a Nazi. Point being, I've given Nazis too much airtime, and I need to return to uh, the youth movement around climate justice. Uh, the, the folks behind the Green New Deal, the This Is Zero Hour group that is layering in indigenous rights and land reform rights and land trusts with women's rights, with actual climate justice, because we won't have an earth to fight over if we don't get some of these other things correct. And that deepens the stakes uh, a bit. And I've been very impressed with this subset of young people uh, calling us to our moral core. So I just want to personally thank all of y'all for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again, Professor Blight. And with thank that, Lewis and ASU a big with, final round of applause for Baratunde Thurston and David Blight. Thank you all so much for coming. Yeah.